0: Hi, I'm Ashley Anthus, and this is Landon. We're going to read scripture for you today. Our scripture reading today comes from Philippians chapter 4, 1 through 3. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown stand firmness in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Give them a hand. They got the hard names and everything. Thanks, Anthesis. Uh, well, I'm Andrew. If I and if I haven't met you before, I'm one of the pastors here, and it's a real joy to be here together on this beautiful Memorial Day weekend. I've heard counselors say this this many times, um, and it stood out to me uh, that you can tell the health of a marriage or almost any intense relationship at all uh, by how they argue, by how they disagree. And I hate to say this, but if if that's the case, as I've reflected on uh, this message for this week. Uh, I have noticed, especially this year, that Christians have not been doing so hot on the whole disagreeing well thing. In fact, I was reading an article last week that was profiling uh, the, the real uh, hurtful disagreement happening uh, in a very prominent denomination here in the United States. This, this is a large and influential group of pastors and theologians and teachers and leaders Uh, who remember with me, bear in mind this, they agree on the most important things in life. These are people who agree that Jesus is Lord. They agree that He is risen from the dead and that that changes everything. They're agreed that sharing that news and discipling people in the local church into the way of Jesus is critical for the hope of the world. They agree that the Bible is God's Word. It's to be trusted in all things, They agree that God is making the world new and that that is our true hope. These are people who can recite the Apostles' Creed together and they can mean every word. And yet, there is ugly, ugly disagreement happening among them. And in some ways, uh, the whole thing is threatening to split apart. It's really sad for me to read. If this were a marriage, the the counselor would write in her notepad, big trouble. And all of that was hard enough for me to read about until I got to this line. This line. One commentator who's, who's, who's familiar but an outside observer, she, she put it this way. She says, How will they convince the world of Jesus' love when they cannot stand one another? That was well said. How will they convince the world of Jesus' love if they cannot stand one another? And here's why I'm saying all of this. We're, we're in a moment, I think, together where we need Paul's words in this letter. Because in a, in a sense... This was Paul's dilemma too, right here in this section. We've been in the letter now for uh, Philippians for for several weeks, and these few verses we just read together are are not the theological high point of this letter. So if you've been with us, you know, back in chapter 2, there's that amazing description of Jesus that you probably memorized in Sunday school, and later on in chapter 4, we get that famous verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, which you've seen in every football game probably written on someone's right. Those are the theological high points of this letter. But these verses, these, these three verses, they are the emotional high point. They're the pastoral high point. And almost every thread, almost every theme that Paul has been developing in these earlier chapters, they find a home right here. In the midst of a pastoral situation, a strong disagreement between two women, Judea and Syntyche, In this disagreement, Paul sees a potential division coming. I don't think it's happened yet. I don't think it's gotten too bad yet, but it's coming. And it's threatening the witness and the mission of the church in Philippi. Because Paul knows if this gets bad enough, somebody's going to say, how are they going to convince anybody of Jesus' love if they can't stand one another? So here's what I think is kind of Paul's big idea in this section of his letter. He says, I think he's saying, we need to disagree better the world does. The followers of Jesus should and can disagree better than just about everybody else. And we have a gospel resource in the life, death, and resurrection, a teaching of Jesus that means we can disagree better. So if you have your Bibles, I want us to be, uh, look at Philippians chapter 4. Uh, Philippians, you can use your table of contents if that's hard for you to find. Chapter 4, the first three verses, is where we're going to be this morning and as we as we dive into this I, and I debated w- w- whether to start here or not but I want to start with a bit of a prequel to what Paul is about to do with kind of our first point it's it's a point so obvious like I said I kind of debated do we even need to start here but as believers and 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 even if you're like an, out, an outside observer here, even if you're here and you're not sure what you think about Christianity or you're not really interested and someone brought you here, I don't know. But even for you, this point, as obvious it is in retrospect, seems to surprise us and dismay us almost every time. So let's just talk about it. Here it is. Our gospel brings people together who will disagree. The gospel brings people together who will disagree. And sometimes we forget that this was, and, that, and it is, and it always will be, <laughs> at least in this age. It's not a bug in the system. It's a feature of what God is doing through his gospel. If you were to, and here's, here's where you can see it. If you were to go back to, say, Matthew 28, okay, the book of Matthew, it's one of the four gospels. Chapter 28 is the last chapter. Uh, Matthew ends that gospel with Jesus commissioning his disciples on mission. He defines what the church is going to be. Remember what Jesus says, he says, go and make disciples, that is, go and make people who follow me together of all nations. Now, that word nations there is is ethne, and is probably better translated peoples, because Jesus isn't saying, go and make disciples of all nation states. He's saying, go make disciples of all peoples, because even nations have different peoples within them. And any disciple that day who heard Jesus lay out this mission, who'd had any cross-cultural experience at all, which they did, it was a very uh, diverse world in the ancient uh, Roman Empire, they had to be thinking, Jesus, you can't be serious. We can't put all these people together. Think of the disagreements. Think of the misunderstandings. That will be too hard. There will be conflict, and they would be right. That did happen. And we've mentioned this several times in this series um, to kind of get us back into the world of this letter, but a consistent and and, and, uh, theological and pastoral problem that that Paul deals with in the early church is how to get Jews and Gentiles to worship together. I mean, it's all over the place. In fact, there there are only a handful of letters from Paul in the New Testament that don't address that issue in one way or another. And if you were to read the book of Acts, which is the early history or, uh, Christian, uh, yeah, the early history of the Jesus movement in the Roman Empire, that's a major theme too. How are the Jews and the Gentiles going to worship together? And that's not the only difference in the early church, right? There was ethnic and cultural diversity, for sure. But there was also socioeconomic diversity. There was rich and poor. And you can see how well that relationship is going in the Corinthian churches when you read 1 Corinthians. The hint there is it's not going very well, uh, if you didn't pick up on that. There was male and female diversity. There's gender diversity in the early church, right? Even in the local leadership, but that's certainly the case here in, in Philippians. And Paul deals with those questions in, in many of his letters as well. How, how do men and women relate in the believing community? There's incre- I mean, all that to say, there's incredible potential for disagreement in these little house churches that you know, there's a lot of the New Testament. <laughs> but Paul knew because Jesus said that this diversity was actually at the heart of his mission in the world. And it was worth the conflict, was worth the friction. Because it's also a central thread in the whole Bible story. If you were to go back, and I, I can't do all of this, but you're going to go back to, the, to Abraham. When God calls Abraham, he says, you will be a blessing and your family to all nations, to all peoples. This goes all the way back to the beginning. And we know that this diversity, right, in all of its forms, ethnic, economic, had incredible apologetic force in the ancient world. In other words, it, it made the church really attractive to people. It was different. And Larry Hurtado, I know I've mentioned him several times, uh, even this this past year, he makes this point in his great book, uh, Destroyer of the Gods, If I could summarize the big idea of this book, it's that Christians were really weird in the ancient world. And he he lays out, here's what was really different about early Christianity from their surrounding context. Diversity was one of those things. That was really weird. It didn't happen. The idea that Gentiles could join a predominantly Jewish movement, Jewish-led movement, at least early on, and not become Jews themselves was really weird. Nobody knew what to do with that. They didn't know what to do with a, with a religious movement that brought the ethne together without uh, wiping out or erasing the ethne of the people. It didn't, make, it didn't compute, but that drew people. They thought, well, how are you doing that? How do you do that? They'd never seen it. But it also had an incredible potential for conflict, for disagreement, and that was okay. So, Paul, okay, now he's writing this letter, and there are these two women who are leaders in this local church. Paul calls them co-laborers with him, and usually he uses that language for for fellow church planters. So, I I think they helped start this church, and it's clear that this, this section, these few sentences here, have been on Paul's mind the entire letter. This isn't the only reason he wrote this letter, but he's been preparing for this moment now, what are these leaders arguing about? Is it missional strategy? Is it a financial decision? Is it about whether to watch R-rated movies or not? I, I don't know. We will probably never know. Paul doesn't feel the need to spell out here what's going on, what this conflict is. We only know that these influential, thoughtful, gifted women are in some kind of sharp disagreement about something, and Paul is not surprised. I don't think he's surprised. Because the gospel brings people together who are going to disagree. It's going to happen. So don't be surprised by conflict. Don't be surprised by it. Conflict and disagreement in in the local church family is not a sign of failure. It is not something God is embarrassed about. It's a natural part of what God is doing in the world. As I said before, it's not a bug. It's a feature in the movement God has created all of that diversity is going to cause some friction let alone just between individuals who are different we should not be intimidated by that or angered by it or confused by it or disappointed by it it's it's natural it's even perhaps a a sign of health because it means we're being real together and when you're real together conflict happens the problem is not conflict the problem is not disagreement. The problem is when we stop disagreeing as loving gospel people and we start disagreeing as bitter and petty and selfish people. That's the problem. Because our gospel actually equips people to disagree well. The gospel equips us to disagree better. I want you to, I, here's how I want you to see this, okay? So these few verses, I want to show you something. I want to show you and and walk through this a little bit how humble and thoughtful and sensitive and brilliant Paul is being in just these three verses in chapter 4, the amount of care and thoughtfulness that he's put into this. Now, we know that Paul is a brilliant theologian. Almost nobody disagrees on that. Even if you're here and you don't believe a word Paul says about Christianity or Jesus or whatever, we all can see this is a brilliant thinker. This is a well-trained mind. No, almost no one disagrees on that, but I want you to see how gifted a pastor Paul is. So first of all, notice with me, he names the women here. He says, Eudia and Syntyche, he names them. Now, when Paul has true enemies in a, in a local church or in a local community, which he did, uh, he almost never names them, because that's an escalation, <laughs> Right? When he's being really harsh with like an enemy, okay, he he doesn't name names in general. In fact, if you look at Philippians, he was pretty harsh earlier about the false teachers. If you remember, he says, watch out for those dogs. I mean, that was pretty harsh. But he doesn't name those people. He, He probably could have, but he doesn't. That's an escalation. He doesn't do that. Here, he names the women, which means that he trusts them to handle this moment well, and it's a, it's, a, it's a tactic of de-escalation. It's as if Paul, by using their names, is saying, like, you guys, I love you, and I trust you, and you can, you can do this. You can, you can disagree better than what I'm hearing is going on. You can do this. And also, in if, if verse 1, you'll notice this too, it uh, ends with the word beloved. So he says, my beloved, You can see that in your English translation. That's true in the Greek as well. It ends with that that word. But what you can't see in English is that verse 2 starts with the name Eudia. Literally, it reads, Eudia I entreat and Syntyche I entreat. So commentators point out that Paul has put the word beloved right next to their names. He wants to, to subtly remind these two leaders, you are beloved too. You are a part of the beloved community to which I'm writing perhaps some hard things. But I love you. You are also my beloved. Notice also he repeats the command twice. It's translated I entreat in your ESV, if you have an ESV. He says, the same. He says it twice, uh, once to, to each uh, woman. He didn't have to do that, right? Just like in English, he could have said, I entreat Yudia and Syntyche. There could be two objects to the verb. But he doesn't do that. He he does not want even a hint of playing favorites. So he says, I entreat you, and I entreat you. Same. Good conflict management. He affirms both women. I pointed this out earlier, but he reminds them and the whole church. Because remember, this letter, the first thing that would happen is it would get read to everybody in a a worship setting like this. Be read aloud to everybody at one time. He reminds everybody that these women are worthy of honor? Both of them, as co-laborers with with Paul, as side-by-siders with Paul for the gospel in Philippi. Notice as well, Paul does not pick sides. We don't know what Paul thinks about the issue. Whatever's going on, he does not feel the need to weigh in, only to say, agree in the Lord. We'll come back to that, hold that thought. Paul also empowers a local leader It's it's in your translation, the true companion. He doesn't name this person. He empowers someone there to manage the conflict, to mediate it. Some people think that this is Lydia, who was the first convert to Jesus in Philippi, if you could read about that in the book of Acts. That would make a lot of sense. She was a business owner. She was clearly a leader in this church as well. Some people think it's Luke, uh, who wrote his own gospel, right? Right? Because if you read, if you kind of read between the lines in Acts, there's a moment where it seems like he stays in Philippi for some time, but we aren't totally sure about that. Honestly, though, we don't know. We don't know who this person is. But whoever it is, Paul is setting them up as a true equal to him, as this is read aloud to everybody in the congregation. It's a subtle generosity from Paul that will help this local leader deal with this conflict. It's as if he's saying, this true companion of mine shares my authority. So listen to her. Listen to him. This person will help you, church. And I, I, that's just a few things. Could, we could do this all day. <laughs> but you're beginning to get the picture. The more I read these little verses, the more I see them as like a masterclass in emotional intelligence from Paul. He is putting on a display here his sensitivity, his thoughtfulness, his care. They're just off the charts. This is exactly the kind of person you want mediating a conflict in your local church, in your business, in your family. Absolutely brilliant conflict management. Why is that relevant? Here's my question. Where did Paul learn how to do that? Here's why I think that's important. Because when you read about Paul in Acts 8 and 9, when you're first introduced to him, when he's going around persecuting and imprisoning and even killing christians the the picture you get of paul is an angry violent hateful person and when you read paul's self-description even here in philippians there are several of them but even here in this letter when he describes himself before jesus you see a prideful arrogant person i mean i don't we don't totally know what paul was like right but he's i think he was kind of a jerk So ask yourself, how did a zealous, fanatical persecutor in Acts 8 become the loving, sensitive counselor of Philippians 4? What happened? And of course, the answer is that the gospel happened to him. The gospel happened to him. The gospel, when it comes into your life, it equips God's people for healthy conflict to get this, because what the gospel does is make you more like Jesus. That's what it does. It makes you more like him. And Paul met the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus. And by the time he writes this letter, he has been walking with Jesus for many years. And it shows. This is a different guy. The kindness, the gentleness, the love, the wisdom. Paul didn't, I don't think he had that before. It's not the impression I get. Where did he learn it? Well, he learned it in training with Jesus. He learned it in the yoke of Jesus. His apprenticeship to him. He became more like him. The gospel equipped him to help others disagree well. And he's calling on them now to say, you also have the same Lord and the same spirit working in you to disagree well, better than you would on your own. Now, so what's changed for Paul? I don't think Paul has become softer in his convictions about the world. I think all of the zeal he had before Jesus is still there in him. What's changed is not his fanaticism. It's what he's fanatical about. You see, now he's fanatical for the gospel. And that changes everything. And that's, that, I, I'm using that language because I want us to do the same. We, we, need, we need to get fanatical about the gospel. But that's one of the, the keys to disagreeing well is that. It's not to suppress what we think or feel or who we are, but to become fanatics about the gospel more than anything else. And here's what I mean by that. I I saw this quote from Tim Keller. He's a a, a retired pastor now uh, in New York City. Um, But he, he put it this way. He says, think of fanatical people. They are overbearing, insensitive, and harsh. Why? It's not because they are too Christian, but because they are not Christian enough. They are fanatically zealous, but they are not fanatically humble, sensitive, empathetic, or forgiving as Christ was. I think that's really well said. If in the midst of our disagreements as believers, which again is going to happen, if in the midst of those things we are known more for our strong opinion than for our strong character. If we are known more for our opinion about Christ than our Christ-likeness, I think we might be fanatical about the wrong things. Even in disagreements with non-believers, okay, which will also happen, remember with me that the early Christian martyrs, those who died for their faith, were known not only for their opinions, which did anger people, but were known also for their gentleness and submission, even unto death. That is, their real fanaticism was their devotion to an imitation of Jesus. That, more than anything else, is what shocked the world. Was these people are like Jesus. And that doesn't make sense to us. How much more so between believers? We should be known more for our character and treatment of one another especially around secondary issues, as this issue in Philippi clearly was. Okay, this is not a doctrine issue. This is not a behavior issue. We don't know what it was, but it's clearly not a fundamental issue. It was a secondary one. So let me bring this home a little bit. If, if, we, if we are disagreeing at a level that is causing division on a non-essential in our church family, or we are being caustic, and personal, and hurtful in our, in our words, against people with whom we disagree, we are probably fanatical about the wrong thing. Our opinion about something should not be more prominent than our imitation of Jesus. And church, part of the reason I'm, I'm spending so much time on this is I think this is a major issue for the church nationally moving forward. I do. I don't think this is going to get easier. And as I kind of read the landscape, I I think the church nationally is going through some stuff right now. Some hard stuff. And it's not always been pretty and it's not always looked very much like Jesus. And we've disagreed on things that are not central to our gospel or our mission. And we have broken fellowship over those things. We've attacked each other over those things at times. Now hear hear me say this, okay. Despite how hard this year was, and I know it was really hard. I am proud to be in this community with you. I am. Because I know it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy for any of us. And, and, but, but we are here, and we're together, and that means something. That means that our love for one another is bigger than those things that could potentially divide, and it is a powerful witness to a watching and divided world it is so thank you from the bottom of my heart thank you for being here it's a gift but let me say our challenge is not over it's not like man pandemic's over we're great no we need to continue in our fanaticism of the gospel to disagree well, even in, a, in an increasingly divisive world, that's why we, when we gather, we say things like the Apostles' Creed together. We sing together. We affirm the fundamentals of our faith together, because it reminds us that what unites us and who unites us, who brings us together, is stronger and bigger than whatever we disagree on. It's bigger than our political opinion much bigger it's bigger than our crash course epidemiology degree that we all got this year okay it's bigger and this is Paul's last point that our gospel is big enough to disagree and again we don't know what this disagreement was about but but whatever it was notice what Paul does not do Paul does not come out and say well that sounds hard go to another church he doesn't say, well, take another team and plant a new congregation, right? Second Church of Philippi down the street. He doesn't say, avoid each other. He doesn't say, just ignore it. He doesn't even say, well, guys, here's the right answer. I mean, think about that. Paul doesn't pick sides. He doesn't, he doesn't share an opinion. Did Paul have an opinion on what was going on there? How could he not? Of course he did. <laughs> he probably thought, I'd rather do this than that or whatever it was, but he doesn't feel the need to say that. All he does is give this command, verse 2, agree in the Lord. Actually, a more literal translation, have the same mind in the Lord. And if that sounds familiar, it's because it's the same word Paul used earlier in chapter 2, verse 2. When he's addressing the whole church, he says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He's been thinking about this that whole time. It's like he's saying, you don't have to agree on this issue, but you do need to agree on the Lord. And you do. Now notice, that command, agree in the Lord, does not solve the conflict. I mean, whatever they're arguing about or disagreeing about has not been solved by saying that statement. That Paul empowers a local leader to do that, right? That he knows there's still work to be done between these two people. Paul doesn't try to solve this problem in a letter. What he does do is put the problem in context. That's what he does. He's saying, Yep, yeah, we, we are gonna disagree and you guys are disagreeing, but we can agree in Jesus, and as long as that is true. Because if we can't agree on that, we have bigger problems. But as long as as we agree, if we have the same mind in Jesus, we will be okay. We'll be okay. We may not be best friends, but we can be brothers and sisters in Jesus. We can. We can. Paul doesn't dismiss or avoid or exacerbate this conflict. He just just puts it in its place. He says, whatever this is, it's nothing compared to the gospel of Jesus. In, In fact, Paul doubles down on this strategy at the end of these verses. He points out that everybody involved, Eudia, Syntyche, the loyal friend, the guy named Clement and we know nothing about, that he decides to throw his name in there, everybody at this church, he says, all of your names, every name is written in the book of life. That's verse 3. And the book of life is an image in the New Testament about Christian eternity, which is why it's, it's most prominent in the book of Revelation at the very end of your Bible, it's a reminder uh, that we are all in Christ raised to new life, that we'll be in perfect harmony together in the new creation. He says everybody here has the same destiny. So we've got to remember in the midst of our conflicts and our disagreements okay, that we're, we have a lot of time left together. This is how I wanted to put this. Forever is a long time to be mad, so figure it out now. I think that's kind of what Paul's doing. He's saying, remember, you're destined together. So figure it out today. We're in the same family. We're under the same Lord. We're destined for the same resurrection. So let's agree in Jesus and get back on mission together here in Philippi. Because part of the joy now is knowing that even conflict around a secondary issue, which can be really hard, by the way, I'm not trying to to minimize that, Even that disagreement, in the midst of it, nothing of of eternal worth is at stake. It's not. The good news of Jesus is still the good news of Jesus, and He still reigns on the throne and is in complete control. If that gospel is real, then it's all going to be okay. It's going to be okay. If the gospel is real, we can disagree, and it'll be okay. Okay. And if the gospel is real, we can practice what Paul tells the Colossian, the Colossian church to do in the letter that he writes to them. And I wanted to pray this text over us today, because I think it's Paul's conflict management manifesto. I think this is Paul's, if you do this, you will disagree really, really well. And so church, let's pray. I'm going to pray these words over us, if you would bow your heads. This is Colossians three twelve to 15. Father, we ask in alignment with your word here to help us to put on as your chosen people, as your holy and beloved people, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. Help us to bear with one another. And even when we have a complaint against somebody else to remind us that you've forgiven us and we also must forgive And Father, over all of these things, put love onto us because it binds everything together in perfect harmony. And Jesus, let your peace, the peace of Christ, may it rule in our hearts and among us because we were called by you into one family, one body. Jesus, may it be so here at Christ Community.